Hi, welcome to the Vine Church podcast. Today we're lucky enough to have Pastor Aaron Dowd share with us. Enjoy. Please, please take your seats. Good morning, everyone. I'm on Power Lines of Connection, week three, um, and the last two messages are up online. And we could have a timer, please. That will keep me on track. That'd be wonderful. Now, in Power Lines of Connection, week two, my aim was to show you how and why mercy is essential in the life of a Christian and in the life of a church. Mercy, my aim was to show from the Bible how powerful mercy is to bring about change in your own life when you receive it and how powerful it is to bring change into the life of others when they experience it. And my goal today is that you will go deeper in your relationship with God which is where it all starts and is absolutely vital, and that we will become a people who are regularly filled and with his love and mercy, because we can only flow out what is flowing in. And from that place of being filled regularly and consistently with the love and mercy of God, that you will be able to flow with that mercy and find those that need mercy and that you will be able to witness the incredible power of mercy to impact and influence others. And today, I would like you to realize fully how massive mercy is in the Bible. It's a weightier matter. It's a more important matter. Not all matters are equal. This is a really essential uh, part of a Christian life. Mercy is massive in God's heart, and it's massive His desire to see in His people. And I'd like to challenge us, um, and including myself here, because I'm not standing up here as one who is perfect or one who has got this sussed, because I don't, and we're working it out together, and that's good. But I want us to challenge us to practice regular, radical, ordinary hospitality because this is a powerful way to show mercy. A powerful way to show mercy is regular, radical, ordinary hospitality. And it's a powerful way to love your neighbor and expand the kingdom. So, we started with this passage and we're not moving on because we're not through with it yet. We're We're gonna stay on this passage. So let's read it together, Matthew 9, 10 to 13. Everyone read together, nice loud voice. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard that he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. If you have the YouVersion Bible app on your phone, you can click on it, click on more, click on events, and if your location services device is on, it will find Divine Church Live event, and then there's all the notes, all the Bible verses, clips, uh, YouTube video clips, links, etc., etc., okay? Now, As I read and meditated upon these verses, one word kept jumping out at me. It's the word recline. And it jumps out at me as I read through these verses. It's mentioned twice. Jesus reclined at table. And it also says, 
um, that many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus um, and his disciples. Now, the dictionary will tell you what recline means. It means to lean or incline backwards, to lie or to repose. And then, I always find that with the dictionary, when they're explaining something, then you have to go and find, well, what does repose mean? So it's, you then go, right, so you look up repose in the dictionary, it's never ended. You know, you could just keep going through. So when, what does repose mean? Well, it means the act of resting. Oh, that word, it's just like a dream. The act of resting. <laughs> or the state of being at rest. It's Christmas time. And it's something that uh, is the opposite very often, isn't it? Repose is a state of mind. It's also a state of mind. Freedom from worry. And as a verb, a doing word, repose means to rest or to relax. Well, those words are so attractive to me right now. <laughs> rest and relaxation. And that word recline, it's incredible because this week recline has been... Uh, it's just been um, really strong, and I can't get away from it. And I, I decided to sit down and watch the Michael McIntyre show last night. And believe it or not, one of his sketches was on reclining. I was quite fascinated that it came up last night. And uh, you know what? I think God's got a sense of humor. I think Jesus liked to laugh. And I think we need to laugh a whole lot more. I think we need a lot more laughter in our lives. We take ourselves so seriously. And life is, gets so serious, don't we? We need to stop taking ourselves so seriously. We need to lighten up. We need to have a laugh. We need to have fun. We need to recline. We need to be incremental recliners and not rude recliners. But Jesus reclined with, he laid down with, he rested and he relaxed with many tax collectors and sinners in a worry-free environment. And rest and relaxation here seem to be a key ingredient in Jesus's, in technical jargon, we would say missionary methodology in his methods of reaching out to people. Rest and re relaxation, I think, was a key ingredient, and we see it right here in today's example in the passage and in the scripture. What if rest and relaxation with others is vital to influencing others, to impacting others, to what we call in the Christian world evangelistic success? in terms of how we bring the kingdom and reveal it and invite others into the kingdom. What if rest and relaxation is a key ingredient? I think we're getting a powerful key today. We see a powerful insight in the scripture of how Jesus went about impacting people because we've said it many times, without contact, there can be no impact. But Jesus' contact in today's example, and of course, Jesus doesn't have a formula that he adheres to every single time, but we're looking at today's example where his contact wasn't rushed. It wasn't hit and run. It wasn't just a short, sharp, hey, excuse me, when you die tonight, are you going to heaven, pal? It wasn't in here, today's example, he took time. And Jesus was going to impact those that were far from God by first being in a relaxed posture with them by spending relaxed time with them. And what is quality time 
a demonstration of because Jesus gave them quality time. And somebody gives you, somebody can give you time and it's not necessarily quality. The husband's sitting, giving his wife some time while he's flicking through the channels at the same time. What's that you said, darling? He's given time, but it's not quality time. Quality time is undivided attention. Because what is quality time a demonstration of? Love. Gary Chapman in the Five Love Languages in his book mentions that quality time is one of the five love languages. And it means giving someone your undivided attention. That's, you know, it is a powerful demonstration and experience of love when you give and when you receive someone's quality time because we're all in a rush. And interestingly, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, one person gave quality time. Two were too busy. And one was an example of what it means to love your neighbor. And his example was where he gave quality time and allowed his time to be interrupted. So it means giving someone your undivided attention. Quality time is a powerful emotional communicator of love. And that's exactly what we've got Jesus doing in today's example. He's giving the riffraff of society quality time. He's given them a powerful demonstration and experience of his love, communicating powerfully, not necessarily through words first, first and foremost. He's, he's connecting to their emotions and demonstrating his love for them. I think the Pharisees were actually jealous because in this atmosphere, he's creating an, a perfect environment to first listen. And then he's creating the perfect environment to speak and be heard. Because this is one of our big problems today, and it's a problem, I think, in actually much of our evangelistic efforts and our efforts to influence others. We don't create good listening environments. Because people generally, I don't know about you, but people generally will not listen until they first feel listened to. And that's very often our problem, isn't it? We're trying to talk and we've not actually listened. <laughs> you know, when you feel listened to, you feel respected. When you feel listened to and understood, and that's, that's our first big challenge is to listen and understand people. Listen to understand why are they object, what, why have they got this worldview? Why are they frustrated? Why can't they stand church? What are their experiences of church? And you probably think if I was in their shoes myself, you know, perhaps I would actually have the same views and opinions. It's getting to understand where they're at. And quality time and a relaxed environment is a powerful way to influence, to connect, and to impact. Now, two Greek words are used in this passage, <clears throat> and they're, they're, they're interpreted as reclined and reclined with. It says, and Jesus reclined at table in the house. Behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. So the word reclined is mentioned there twice. And if there's any Bible geeks there, out there in the audience who like a wee bit of Greek, there's your two Greek words up on your screen, anakamahi 
and sun akamahi. As you'll notice, the two words, there's only one difference. One's got sun in front of it. Sun, it, so you've got your first one there, anakamahi, which means to be laid up or to recline. Very simple, to recline. Okay? And it's used, for example, I recline, but it's always connected with the dinner table. And that's why they say, why, why, why do you eat with sinners and tax collectors? It's reclining at a dinner table. There's a connection between this posture of relaxation and eating. The only difference with the second word is got that word soon in front of it. And soon just there very simply means, as you can see up there, with, together with. So the first you can do on your own, you can anakamahi on your own, you can uh, recline on your own, and actually we're probably pretty good at that. On our own, on the recliner, with the TV, actually that's not the problem very often. The, the second one is the problem, sunakamahi, it's with, not on our own, but with, with others in the process, opening up our life and allow others to recline with and at a table. So there's something important, and there's a connection here between relaxation, rest, and eating. And it's together with people. And so I, I think there actually is something really powerful in this, because the first one you can do on your own, you can recline, lie down, relax. But the second word requires other people on the journey with you. It's soon. With other people. And we're told that many sinners and tax collectors were reclining with Jesus. First of all, we've got him reclining, and then others come and join him in the reclining process. But when I was thinking about this, it does actually throw up a number of questions. How on earth do you do that? <laughs> How do you recline at a table and eat? I mean, did they have recliner seats like this one up here? Um, how did they lie down and relax and eat at a table and include other people in that? Because I think part of our problem and my problem understanding this comes from how we eat today. Because we sit at chairs, we don't lie down. Very often it's not a slow, relaxed process. Very often it's a quick one. Uh, very often we're not in a relaxed state or a state of rest. Sometimes there's a TV playing. Sometimes the TV is just to help try and create an atmosphere of peace, to create distraction. But how did they eat in Jesus' day? Did they eat like Leonardo da Vinci depicted in his famous painting, in upright chairs around an Ikea table with a dirty table covered in a wash? Is that how the Jews and the Romans would eat in Jesus' day? Well, they did not sit up on chairs like we do today. But they reclined on couches or cushions around a low table. Because by the time I've, allow me, because there's a reason why I'm going into this, so allow me a few moments just to give a brief bit of history a bit. You see, in the time of Jesus, the, the Roman custom of reclining on couches at supper was adopted in some Jewish circles. And the Roman table and couches um, combined the word was called a triclinium. A Roman dining room was called a triclinium because it contained three couches set around a central table. And the table was on a, a low block with couches around it on three sides. 
And the couches would be covered with a cushion. It'd be quite comfortable, as you can see. They reckon there was a 10-degree angle in them to make for even more comfort, maybe just to help the food slide down a little bit easier. And um, there would be a cushion provided for the guests to lean on. And the guests would approach the table from behind. Their feet would be uh, behind them, which would make it easier for servants to be able to wash their feet. Now, a, a normal Roman triclinium would uh, have nine people around the table with three on each couch. But on the account of the Last Supper, we have 13 at a table. So they either had larger couches or they had cushions on the floor or they were really squashed together quite intimately as intimate friends. But I want to ask you, what, when you think of people eating like this, what words does it bring to mind? What do you think of when you, when you think of this? Um, uh, t Tim, could I have you up here a second? Um, I need your help, please, um, to try and demonstrate this on stage here with our triclinium. There's a little table out in front here. And uh, what, you, what they would do, Tim, is they would lie on their left. There would be three. Lie on their left to keep the right hand free for reaching the food at the table. So come and, come and lie down on my tray. We need a third person. Um, who's uh, Joe? Come and join us. So on your left, Tim, lean on your left elbow there, this way. And uh, Tim, could you pass me the salt, please? <laughs> so we would have our table. There we go. We've got our table. Where's the, David? Where's the food? This servant's no get. You're fired, pal. <laughs> Wash my feet. Wash my feet. <laughs> get the shoes off. Right, Joe, on your on your left, bro. On your left. <laughs> right. So we're here. We've got servants bringing the food. And when you look at the, the posture, you can see how in accounts where someone would lean on Jesus' bosom, it was quite easy to lean back and to hear and to whisper, which, which one is going to deny you, Jesus? You can see there how there would be three here, there would be three there, there would be three there. The, the other end, like in a U, would be open for the servants to come in and to top up the food. Now, Tim, how are you feeling? You're feeling quite relaxed. That's, what about you, Joe? You hungry? <laughs> so, so, yeah, I mean, there was, this, this created lots of uh, opportunities for discussion. Now, thanks, guys. Give our guys a big round of applause. But um, just shout out some words. When we think of people eating like this, what kind of words does it bring to mind? Just shout out some words. Relaxed. Any others? Reclined, any others? Close, any others? Fa face to face? Not face to face, okay. Sort of messy? Any others? You know, there's certainly an element of relaxing, there's an in element of intimacy. There's an element of slowness. They're, they're not going to be in a rush, I don't think. There's an unwinding. There's a resting. There's certainly comfort. And I think it kind of conjures up the idea of quality time. And remember, love is patient. You know, so, so sometimes when we're demonstrating love, we need patience. We need time, don't we? It requires quality time. 
And the question is, how do we translate that into our culture today? I mean, do we all go home and build triclinians in our house? Do we get Stuart to design them for us with 10 degree angles and get some cushions and invite? I don't think that's the idea. I think Jesus was adapting to the culture and he would adapt to our culture today. But the question I would ask is, what does it mean for us to translate this idea into our culture? And I think we have to figure out ways what it means to be around people far from God and those Uh, and our families and our our Christian brothers and sisters, how we can be in a relaxed, restful, unwinding, hospitable environment. And it doesn't have to be lying down, but I think we need to learn from example to make people feel welcomed, relaxed, restful, and comfortable. First of all, so I can listen to them and hopefully and maybe their hearts will open to be to listen to what i have to say but i think we're 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 quick to want people to listen but i think we first have to listen in order to open their hearts now the pharisees were struggling with this and they struggled with why jesus would uh, um, spend quality time with such people and he asked them what he was doing What was he doing by reclining and giving quality time to these people? And I think Jesus' answer reveals what he is doing is he's showing mercy. And Jesus is about to show them how mercy is so massive in God's kingdom. He says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. So we've just looked at when when Jesus was reclining with these people, many of them, he was showing them mercy. And then he's pointing out that the Pharisees need to go and learn what this means. And Jesus is pointing out that the Pharisees knew scripture really well, but they did not understand it. And he tells them to go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And Jesus is quoting Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. I don't want to go into the book of Hosea too much, but just very simply, the book of Hosea was written in the Old Testament about the 8th century BC. And, And during that time, it was probably the most turbulent and trying time in the history of Israel. God knew and Hosea knew that they were about to be destroyed by the Syrian Assyrians in 722 BC because of their unfaithfulness. And I desire mercy and not sacrifice. It's probably better understood today. It's a Hebrew way of saying, I prefer mercy to sacrifice. I prefer mercy to sacrifice. So Jesus, here he is, he's reclining with these people far from God and what is he doing he's showing mercy and he's saying that this what I'm doing is more important than sacrifice rituals and duty people over things and mercy simply is from the word eleos compassion tender mercy kindness and outward manifestation of pity it's basically goodness and kindness to others something that we should desire to become. 
And that's what Jesus is doing by reclining. He's eating with others. He is showing kindness. Number one, with his time. Probably two, practically. I mean, who paid for this food? I don't know. Um, but it is a powerful demonstration of love and kindness and mercy. And you know what? That softens hearts. That softens hearts. People's hearts are softened when they experience love, when they experience kindness. And that's part of our problem. We're trying to speak to people, uh, especially when you bump into people and just, you know, they become a project for you to speak to. <laughs> and we've not got a clue what's going on in their life. We don't understand the pain or the disappointment and you know, we need to allow people to speak. So Jesus tells the Pharisees, go and learn what this means. We could interpret the words, I desire mercy and not sacrifice like this. I am more pleased with acts of kindness, helping others, doing good to others, than with the mere external compliance with the duties of religion. How relevant is that for us today? Because that's what the Pharisees needed to learn. That's why Jesus was eating with people far from God. What was he doing by eating with them? He was showing mercy. He was eating with them, which was an act of kindness, helping them and doing good to them. But the Pharisees, they were more self-focused than others focused. And on your notes, you'll see that religion is more obsessed with self than others. Religion is more obsessed with things than people. Religion is more obsessed with duties than mercy. And more religion is more obsessed with my name, my reputation, than his name and his reputation. Now we see in Hosea that there was no truth or mercy or knowledge of God in the land because when there's a breakdown in our relationship with God, the merciful one, our mercy to others is weak also. When love is not flowing in, it's very difficult for it to flow out. And what, what is it that changes us? It's the love of God flowing in regularly and frequently that changes us. It's knowledge of him that changes us. Because we need to be filled with his love and mercy regularly. Because we come hard. We do. Life is tough. Life is difficult. It knocks you down. You fail. You mess up. You screw up all the time. You beat yourself up. You know your own weaknesses. You know your own cracks. And you become hard and don't care about others' problems because you're so consumed with your own problems. Anybody been there? Yeah? Because we need his love and mercy flowing, grace flowing before it can flow out of us so that we can find those. We need to fill with his love and mercy so that we can flow with his love and mercy so that we can witness the power of love and mercy. And I think this is spirit-filled living. Now, I think it's interesting that we've got... Uh, um, we see in these passages how knowledge of God and mercy are coupled together. I'm going to try and bring this to a close in the next five minutes, okay? But we see that knowledge of God 
uh, and mercy are coupled together. Hosea 4 verse 1, hear the word of the Lord, you children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land, because there is no truth, nor mercy, nor knowledge of God. So God's complaint started with, there's no truth, or mercy, nor knowledge of God. That's in, and then in Hosea 6, we see what God's main desire, I desire mercy and the knowledge of God. What was his complaint? What was missing? Truth, mercy, knowledge of God. What did he desire? Mercy and knowledge of God. Because in order to grow in mercy, we need to grow in our knowledge of God. And I'm not talking about knowledge of the Bible, but the knowledge of the author of the Bible. And the, the word knowledge is from yada, which is um, personal relational knowledge. It's the difference between knowing someone and knowing about someone. You see, you can know lots about God like the Pharisees without knowing God experientially and in a relationship. We see, where did the Pharisees lie? Well, they had a great knowledge of Scripture, didn't they? But they had very little mercy. They had little relationship with the author. And how much mercy did they have? How much mercy for the sinners, the tax collectors? How much mercy for the crippled man who wanted to be healed on the Sabbath? How much mercy for the woman who was caught in adultery? They had no mercy. Like the Levite and the, Levi and the Pharisee in the parable of the Good Samaritan, they had no mercy. They had no time. They passed by on the other side. Yes, they had a position. Oh, they had a title, okay. They had a reputation. They loved to parade, but no mercy. They had faith without works. They had a dead faith. They had knowledge, but no heart knowledge. No yada, no personal relation, ongoing experiential knowledge of the love and the mercy and the kindness and the goodness of God towards us who are broken in order that it would flow out to others. Compare that with Jesus, who had complete knowledge of God. There was no one with a better relationship. The model relationship between a father and a son for us is Jesus. And he had the perfect model relationship of father-son. He modeled for us that God wants us as a sons and daughters of him to come into that relationship. And because he had that perfect knowledge of God, he flowed in mercy. When you're lacking mercy, it's we're lacking the, the, there's a breakdown in our relationship with the merciful one. So, you know, when Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? He didn't give one, he gave two. That's fascinating. What is the greatest commandment? He didn't give one, he gave two. When we think about that, why is that? I think it's because you can't have one without the other. You can't have love for God and not have love and mercy for people. This is how Ravi Zacharias puts it. We're going to finish on this quote, and then if we could have the band back up, we're going to, we're going to finish. Okay, let's just watch this. This is how Ravi Zacharias puts it. Let's just watch this. He said no. But then...
He said, no. But then the second questioner comes and wants to pit him law against law, ethic against ethic. Because Moses had given 613 laws. And so this man comes to Jesus and says, couldn't beat him up against political authority. They tried to pitch him against religious authority. And they said to him, which is the greatest commandment? Out of 613, it is fascinating to me that Jesus did not select one. What he said was this, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He said, on these two laws hang all of the laws and the prophets. Why did he not give one? Because hinged on the one was the inextricable imperative of the second. You cannot say you love God and hate your neighbor. And the imperative to love God is because when you take all of the commandments and take the 10 of them which were key, if there's one word that the 10 commandments can be reduced to, it's the word sacred. Your life is sacred. Your property is sacred. Your marriage is sacred. Your time is sacred. And so is your neighbors. You cannot violate your neighbor's sacredness of right and tell that neighbor that you still love God. I think what Jesus says here is remarkable. The value given to you is intrinsic. It's not extrinsic. That every human life is a life of worth and a life of value. That is the bequest of the Judeo-Christian teaching. That your life has intrinsic worth and is inviolable. Jesus always reached out to the marginalized over the over society rather than the sophisticated ones, be they religious or powerful. When he stopped to talk to the woman at the well who had five broken marriages in her life, the disciples questioned why he would even want to be seen by a woman like that. And the woman with the alabaster ointment came and poured it over him. She was a woman who'd made her money through means that would never have been affirmed or supported by the mainstream of society there. And the Pharisee looked at her and he said, thought to himself, if he only knew who she was, he would never have allowed her to even come near him. Children came to talk to him. The poor and the leprous came for his touch. The imperative of love and compassion from Christ to the marginalized in society came as a natural outworking of these two precepts that every human being is made in the image of God and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You may have to listen to that a few times. It's packed full of absolute dynamite in there. But um, let's have the band back up. Why is loving God and loving uh, our neighbors, loving people? You know, when Saul was persecuting the church, he was blinded on the road to Damascus, and uh, he heard these voices, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Who was Saul persecuting? People. 
Jesus says, you're persecuting me. Wow. How is that? Well, you know, as a father or a mother, your child, when they're in need and someone blesses them, it blesses you. Yeah? When someone loves your child, they are loving you. If I see my child in need and someone passes by, they've not loved me. And so loving, that's why mercy is a weightier matter. It's a weightier matter in the kingdom. And we'll, we'll unpack that more next week. It's so huge to the heart of God. And it's so important that we are a people that are known about what we're for more than we're known for what we're against. The church has become about all what it's against. But our message needs to be what we're for and see the beauty and the image of God in every single human being and see the beauty and the potential in each human being and release that vision and hope and faith in the individual through connecting. Three very simple things to finish with. Number one, three, three applications if you like that hope will be woven through this message. Number one, we need to be full of the knowledge of God, intimate personal relationship, no knowledge with God, daily worship, getting on our own, going in our doors, closing the doors and praying to him who's in secret. We need to grow and be filled with love and mercy and compassion and we need to keep developing that. Number two, we need to learn to chill, chill relax, recline with friends and family. Quality time is a great demonstration of mercy and love. We need to give quality time to our spouse. <laughs> Guilty. We need to give quality time to our children. We need to give quality time to our friends and family. But Jesus in this example modeled quality time with those far from God because Jesus had three key relationships. Father, disciples, those who know him, and those far from God, up, in, and out. And that's the three relationships that he wants us to grow in. And so my practical application and challenge is to practice radical, ordinary hospitality. Practice reclining, practice opening the doors and eating with, relaxing, reclining, eating with, and listening to those far from God and trusting the Holy Spirit and see where it goes. We're never going to impact when there is no com contact. The church is known for its separation. We need to become friends of those far from God. Let's stand to our feet. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you came to fix what was broken. As we look forward to Christmas, we remember the Prince of Peace came to bring shalom. You came to restore that which was broken in our lives. Number one, our relationship with you. Number two, our broken relationships with others. And number three, all the broken pieces in our lives that are a complete mess. You came to restore us to wholeness. You came to put back together that which is broken. And we thank you, God, for your love. We thank you for sending your son. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for dying for us, for taking our punishment so that we could be brought back into relationship with you so that we could be filled with your love and mercy. And today, Father, my prayer is that your love and mercy would start to come and wash over us. 
your love and mercy would wash over us and after that last song anybody that wants to be prayed for for a fresh uh, touch of God's love and mercy just come down the front and we'll just ask our prayer team to be ready once we'll, we'll do this song of worship and then if you could just have a, a, a music video ready to play quietly in the background as we pray for anyone who wants to receive a fresh touch of God's love and mercy because life is tough and you know that and yeah, you can go in your room and pray for God's love in your own, but there's something powerful when you receive, when you humble yourself and ask someone to pray for you. So maybe today you want to do that and we, we're happy to pray for you. If you don't know Jesus today, let's just, everybody together. Dear Lord Jesus, pray this in your heart and mean it. Dear Lord Jesus, thank you for coming and dying on the cross for me. Today, I ask you to forgive me for all going my own way and all this stuff in my life. I'm broken and I'm in need of you. Come into my life today and put me on the right path. Give me a new life, a new heart, new desires, and put the broken pieces of my life back together in Jesus' name, amen. With every eye closed, not gonna pull you down in front or embarrass you, but with every eye closed, anyone say that prayer for the first time today? Just put your hand up nice and high. Anybody say that prayer for the first time? Thank you. Wonderful. Gold bags up the back. If you prayed that prayer or are interested, finding out more, take a gold bag. If you're a youth, take a silver bag and that will give you some more uh, information. Come on, church. Let's put, our, let's put our hands together and thank God for his wonderful love, for his wonderful mercy, for his wonderful kindness. Let's, let's worship. Thank you, John.